Welcome to Making and Breaking Social Policy, a podcast about social issues and policy and what it means for social and community practice. My name is Ben Lohmeyer, and I'm the host of this podcast and teach the social policy topics in the social work program at Flinders University. My special guest for this episode is Associate Professor Andrew Orton from Durham University in the UK. Andrew has a professional background in community and youth work as a practitioner, manager, trustee, and a consultant. He's worked with a wide range of organizations in voluntary, public, and faith-based sectors in these roles and through his research. Andrew is the co-director of the Center for Social Justice and Community Action at Durham Uni and is experienced in developing policy and practice through participatory research. We discuss some of the challenges and opportunities of working with practitioners and policymakers to influence social policy through these co-design processes. This podcast is edited and published on the traditional lands of the Ghana people, and we acknowledge the importance of their relationship with this land and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. And this episode was recorded in Durham in the UK in 2023. Andrew, thank you for joining me today to chat about participatory practices and a little bit about policy formation. Uh, So to get us started, can you tell us a bit about your practice background and how it led you into becoming an academic and with a focus on participatory research? Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Um, I got into this work by being a community and youth worker, really, um, managing charities, working in in sort of areas with uh, multiple uh, experiences of poverty often, um, and working as a community member and practitioner working in those sorts of areas, being able to get involved both in local action, but also in uh, a national community forum, which was a government advisory body at the time. Uh, subsequently, I've done a lot of consultancy work and academic work, leading programs, training practitioners, um, and exploring research in these types of areas. Nice. So, given your practice background in that space, why become an academic? Like, what was the what was that transition for you? I think I, I was always interested in different ideas of what good practice were. How how do practitioners make difficult decisions? Um, how do they work with different groups who might have different ideas about? Um, what the outcome should be in a local community and and how do you work with those sorts of ethical issues. Um, And for me, that's inherently a participatory process. You're getting different groups involved and often having a debate around what the intended outcome should be and the best way of getting there. Um, And often you've got people with different levels of power, different different ideas, uh, and you're having to in some ways mediate between them or uh, trying to help them to learn from each other so that they understand each other's perspective a little bit better. Nice. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so it sounds like um, in some ways, would it be fair to say your practice uh, skills and knowledge like directly translate into this way of doing research, of of gathering uh, people's perspectives and doing that mediation and supporting them to challenge systems and power structures? Absolutely. I think that's that's core and it's core core skills within a lot of participatory research processes. Um, But often you within those processes, you're having to help people to learn from each other, really. And that's that's been core to my practice as a community worker. Nice. That's great. Um, So there's a few different projects that you've been involved in and uh, over a number of different years and and they're really quite interesting in and of themselves. So I'm going to name a couple of them Then I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about why participatory practices are are really valuable in these diverse kind of spaces. So you've been involved in uh, with the Council of Europe exploring 
um, improved approaches with policymakers to building migrants belonging within local communities and exploring uh, faith in intercultural cities. You've also been involved in uh, projects like the, with the Methodist Church of Great Britain, exploring Deacon's perspectives on good practice in decolonial ministry. Uh, and then more recently, you've been looking at things like uh, ethical quandaries facing practitioners in uh, Christian social welfare work in Europe. So um, they are quite diverse in some ways, but the, the consistent theme is your participatory approach uh, to, in those spaces. Can you tell us a bit more about, or is it even possible to capture succinctly uh, what the value of a participatory approach is for capturing these p community perspectives on, and p to influence policy creation? Okay, well, I mean, I, th I think I'd probably take it back a step and just first of all think about um, how participation in policy often works or doesn't work in practice, uh, and then think about how research can contribute to that. So, you know, within a lot of policy making settings, par participation of people with lived experience is increasingly a theme within policy. Uh, there is this idea that you can get better policy if you somehow engage with those who are at the front end of experiencing um, the issues that the policy is designed to address. Uh, absolutely agree with that on principle. However, in practice, it doesn't always work as well as it's intended to for a whole range of reasons. I can't cover them all today because it's only a short recording. But for example, you can often get situations where selected community perspectives of the usual suspects that engage in these participatory processes end up being used to rubber stamp the predetermined decisions of the policymakers in the first place. Mm. Um, this is something that practitioners often experience and it's something that's a recognised theme in the related research. Um, so you then think, you know, is, is it even worth doing this? Is this just some sort of uh, smokescreen really for, for what um, existing power relations to continue? At the same time, my experience has been in practice and in research that sometimes you get these those sort of experiences where the light goes on, where practitioners or people in local communities share a perspective and the policymakers suddenly go, ah, I didn't think about it like that. Yeah, cool. I mean, just 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 a sort of practical example of that. Um, there are some obvious contexts where there are policies designed to improve cross-community interaction between diverse groups in local communities uh, and policymakers come along and they've maybe got some money and they want to encourage more, more projects that might bring groups together. Laudable aim, great. Um, and so the way they decide, they think about, oh, the way we might do that is we'll create a funding pot and we'll get groups to bid for their best idea for uh, delivering cross-community interactions. And of course, the practitioners come along and say, but that means I'm going to end up bidding competitively against the groups you want me to work with. Yeah. And the, the actual outcome of that will be more division than um, the natural cohesion, um, at which point you then get into a situation of asking a better set of questions about how do we design a policy intervention here with the money that's available that might bring people together rather than pull them apart. Um, so you've got situations like that where it's possible to design better policy, but you have to do it collaboratively to overcome the dilemmas you would otherwise experience. That's fantastic. Well, that's such a clear example. Uh, it makes me think to about a couple of parts of the framework that we use in this topic uh, to help unpack uh, the, the representation of problems or the way that we go about trying to solve things in policy. One of the key questions from uh, Carol Backey's WPR approach is, what are the lived effects of, mm. of a policy decision and a policy problem representation? And so that's 
where I hear your your point about um, getting the the lived experience of people on the ground in to to hear from them, uh, and that would change the way that we think about the problem, which is fantastic. But I can also see how, like you described, they can become very tokenistic or routine or rubber stamp and and miss that that point. So I think that tension that um, that caution is is really important. Is also sorry. Yeah, no, I mean I think. That's absolutely right. And it's true as well in relation to practitioners as well, in my experience. So practitioners dealing with difficult social policy issues um, often end up in situations where they they face really difficult dilemmas. Um, You know, the the, the sort of classic example we've been looking at recently in the work on Christian social welfare practices, you're in a situation where you want to respond to food poverty in the local community uh, and yet you're giving out food and yet the line of people who need food is getting longer and longer, often because of a whole range of social policy issues and wider political contexts. Um, at what point do you start to invest and in, investigate and get involved in some of those broader social, social and political issues that are leading to the queue getting longer? Um, but if you do that, you have to divert your attention away from the immediate work of feeding hungry people. And of course, that feels ethically hugely problematic too. Um, So for lots of practitioners, they're in this sort of difficult situation where they're having to make some quite difficult calls and often draw on their own values. In in a lot of my work, it's about um, people who are coming from a Christian faith perspective. So often they're drawing on their own theologies as well um, and working through networks and structures um, to try and have an impact on those sorts of issues. Um, so it's really important for me that you engage with those different rationales, the different ways that the people are justifying their dif- decisions, um, but also try and get different groups to learn from each other and each other's rationales too. Yeah, okay. So the the participatory approach gives us a chance to hear from those diverse groups, for them to hear from each other, but also to even drip down as, as as far as values and and beliefs and motivations for yeah. for the work that we're doing. Because I think again that example you've given is is great because it shows this this tension between two ways of thinking about a single problem. You know, you've got this line of people for for food. Is that a, a need in terms of providing more services, or is there a need to challenge the the system that created that circumstance yeah. and and so we could argue in this policy context in this topic that that's two different representations of the problem yeah. so then where do people put their energy to, to yeah. which one and this this approach gives us a chance to really see i think those two different, different and, objectives. and often the response the, the more holistic response might be both and yeah. and and a few other things as well so one of the values of participatory approaches quite often is people who are t- adopting different strategies seeing the value of the other strategies as well that other people are using but also connecting them so if you get the people who are giving out the food parcels collecting better data on the rising need and the reasons why people are presenting and are using that to feed the policy work uh, and that's connecting with people who might be taking slightly more radical action over some of these issues. You start to get something that's a much more combined holistic response that any one group by themselves can't possibly do alone. That's correct. Yeah, often uh, in the classroom space, when I start this kind of conversation with students about policy, it's quite difficult to to see another way of thinking about the problem. 
Uh, and then once we get that far, sometimes it seems like we're only ever criticising a policy. But mm. what you're describing is a both-and approach. Is that saying it's not we need to see the gaps but also need to be able to work collaboratively with, with the, the issue from multiple perspectives. And I think for me that shows that in part, you know, policy is always kind of limited. You can't write everything into a single document. But that's also why we need those different perspectives, those different kind of knowledges to it. Absolutely. And I, I mean, one of the recent projects I did was on Christian responses to debt and money issues uh, and maybe less, less, often less in the spotlight, but nevertheless an area that a lot of groups are getting involved in. And you you see within that work a whole range of different responses from um, you know, giving debt advice or trying to help people to budget more effectively all the way through to political campaigning on the sorts of reasons, you know, constraining payday lenders and, and exploitative lenders and, and a whole range of other factors along the uh, way. Um, and you can, through participatory research, yes, sometimes engage with those who have got the frontline experience of trying to respond to those issues, who have experience of debt themselves, but also those groups who are trying to make a difference on those issues and bring them together to connect their strategies more effectively. Makes sense. Yeah, okay. I mean, the next question I have in my mind is, and I'm conscious that you, know, you run probably not just whole day, but like semester long topics on this. But if we started to think about how do we do participatory research like this, what are some principles or, or you know, what works in this space? Could you give us a, a snapshot into that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots you could say here and I won't be able to summarise it all in one go. But just a few, I mean, a few points. Clearly, this work is about making an impact, but it's uh, working on what that impact might be together. Um, there are a whole range of ethical issues related to this sort of type of type of approach, um, which need to be dealt with really quite carefully. I won't be able to cover them all here, but but we we produce there are the Centre for Social Justice and Community Action has produced some ethical guidelines which go some way towards trying to uh, tackle some of these issues. Um, I think you know often this is a Ground rules are really important. Yeah, making sure that people who are getting involved in these processes know what they're letting themselves in for, that they have some, they they have a say in how their experiences are represented, uh, that they have uh, some understanding of the ways in which what they share will be used um, for one way or another, and they have that, that ownership of the research process as a whole. Different types of project might involve different degrees of participation, and we have to be really honest about the extent to which participation is possible in particular cases. When you're dealing with um, you know, powerful people like policymakers, talking about controversial topics like migration, uh, yeah, um, in comparative ways, sometimes you might need to create um, you know, a space which is people can speak frankly. Um, you know, Chatham House Rules type space where you've, you've got a, a, an environment in which people can talk to a degree off the record um, and aren't feeling like they're going to end up on the front page of the local tabloid for what they've said. Um, so that becomes quite important. But then you sort of still have to, um, yeah, work work with that in a way that people can learn from each other and be challenged by diverse voices. Um, often the challenge is how do you get those representations of the less powerful groups into the room um, and how do you bring in different perspectives? Mm -hmm. For me, sometimes that's also been about how we draw on other forms of research. 
So you might have other research that's already collected large scale quantitative data sets. You might have other research that's already engaged in a deep way with the lived experience of particular groups. Um, and you can draw some of that into the conversation as well. Um, as well as in, in certain situations, actually making sure those groups are involved in the conversation more directly. Yeah, great. Oh, that's really interesting. I find um, sometimes when we talk about uh, things like participatory research or other forms of uh, practices, they can be really kind of set up almost ironically in this hierarchical way, like that you have to achieve a certain uh, best, purest form of, mm. of participation, but you're saying that actually you need to be conscious of the context and to think about how best to include voices in that space. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think there are ethical issues involved in in different types of participation. Um, you know, there are ethical issues about putting one person with lived experience on a, on a stage and saying, there you are, represent everybody in that thing. So that, that's hugely problematic. And so you, you've got to really design these experiences quite carefully. Um, and that's true in policy making circles as well. I've seen people put in that situation and then have their experience discounted because it's just an anecdote. So that's where connecting some of these different forms of evidence becomes really crucial as well, because often what we're dealing with here are systemic issues. Yeah, fantastic. That makes so much sense. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that almost makes it harder, doesn't it? It's trickier if we have to think about it in kind of more nuanced and complex ways. Um, is there... Is there any examples where you can give us where perhaps some major pitfalls to avoid or, or uh, you know, when you've seen it most usefully inform policy, I suppose, either sides mm. of those coins? I mean, I think some of this does come down to being clear about expectations and process. I think it does sometimes come, up, come down to sort of the... Um, Some of this work is also relational. Um, and so often what the participatory processes are doing is, is creating an environment in which some relationships can form, people can get to know each other, that there are, um, and that might be different practitioners getting to know each other who, who end up working together. Um, so you're forming, you know, Etienne Wenger's idea of communities of practice. Um, we we are able to develop our practice, improve our practice, sharpen each other's practice by being communities of practice together. Uh, and that involves, I think, you know, academics, researchers, people who are involved in these issues because we're passionate about them, um, being in a bit of a convening space, a bit of a comparative space, sometimes a bit of a troublemaker space because you end up, at, yeah, sort of problematizing particular approaches and bringing different points of view together that don't sit comfortably together um, and trying to find the ways in which they can learn from each other. That's really cool. Okay. Yeah. So the, the relational and the role that the researcher can play as a, as a troublemaker, I think is quite a, an interesting and challenging kind of idea that you might yeah, have to help people wrestle with with model perspectives that don't always sit well. Yeah, and, and I think the, the the final thing I'd sort of probably add in with that, as well as dealing with all of this ethically, I suppose, is to often it's difficult because you're an individual researcher in the middle of all of this. Uh, you might be dealing, yeah, you, you have to be reflective about your own positionality, about your own identity, your own background. Why are you there? 
what's going on. Um, you know, some of the best participation often is done with with teams of people because you're able to work together on exploring some of these things too. So there are lots of different ways you might manage those issues, but I think it is really important to be reflective about your own position, your own power, your own ways of engaging with these issues. Be sensitive and careful and ethical about the ways in which you use whatever power you do have. That makes sense. That's great. Okay, so working in groups gives you opportunity to uh, support that kind of reflexivity. Is there um, any other resources, perhaps, because you're the, the co-director uh, of the, the Centre for Social Action and um, sorry, community, community Action and Social Justice? I get those around the wrong way all the time. Centre for Social Justice and Community Action. Thank you very much. Uh, so you're the co-director, and they've got a bunch of resources that you've already mentioned. Are there other resources or resources the centre has that you can offer to, to help people in that kind of reflexive work? Uh, well, the, the, the centre has a range of resources around doing participatory research in a whole range of these contexts. I mentioned ethical guidelines particularly that have been co-developed with, with the wider national network. Um, we... I think there are lots of, I mean, there's a huge academic literature on a lot of lot of these areas as well, of which there are various articles that have been written, including by myself, you know, on some of these topics. Um, but I think often some of the ways of doing this is, is to, if you're interested in this type of research, is to go out and you know, do, do some appropriate training on these methods um, to work and reflect with others on the ways in which you might go about doing this in relation to a particular context. Because... A lot of this learning is there are some core, you know, core approaches and skills and values that are absolutely central to undertaking this sort of research well. Um, but in relation to the topic, you often can't lift insights from one particular context and plonk them down in another context. So one of my particular areas of interest is in comparative research between contexts and bringing practitioners and policymakers together across contexts. Um, and even something that works really well in one context can't, won't always just lift and transfer to another context because the context is different uh, and the person doing that piece of work might be different. And so there's a lot of learning to be had, I think, about some of that comparative dialogue between people in different contexts. Um, but that might also open up new avenues for new solutions as well. Um, I mean, this is a common theme in comparative social policy internationally, um, but I think this applies very much so um, for practitioners too in this context. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, well, if people wanted to find out some more about your work, and particularly that comparative work that you mentioned at the end there, can, where can they find you on, on the internet or some other, give you a chance to do a shameless sort of self-plug of your work? You can always search for Andrew Orton, Durham University, and you'll find uh, my publications there. Great. That's the easiest one. Uh, I'll provide a link to that in the show notes as well, so that'll, that'll be great. Thank you so much for the chat. It's really interesting to hear about you know, the, the different uh, places that you've done this kind of work and, and some of the, the key principles as well as, as well as kind of cautions in that space. I think that's really insightful and useful for thinking about yeah, involving people in the policy creation process. This episode was edited by Ryan Manhire, music by Anthem of Rain, sourced from the freemusicarchive.org. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter, at Ben. If you like the podcast, please like, share, comment, and do all the things.